Um, well, good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning. We're going to jump right into, uh, into the scripture this morning. If you want to grab your Bible and open to Ephesians chapter 2, that's where we're going to be reading from this morning. Uh, but before we get there, let me just uh, kind of give us a review of what we have studied thus far. So uh, this is our uh, third, fourth week in Ephesians. The first week we looked at verses 1 through 2, which serve as a greeting. So Paul kind of greets the recipients. It's the shortest of all of Paul's greeting, but a greeting nonetheless. So kind of uh, welcomes uh, and then greets the recipients of the letter. Verses uh, 3 through 14 offer an introduction to a few of the main points that he will then detail out through the rest of the book, all right? So it begins to kind of lay the foundation for what Paul really wants to get at uh, in Ephesians. Verses 15 through 22, which is what Russ spoke about last week, uh, kind of ends the introduction, and then in our cases really ends chapter 1, by praying for and over the church. And again, in that reminds us a few fundamental truths about the nature of God, uh, but then also the desired hope that Paul has for the church. And at that point, we are at chapter 2, which is what we are going to read and study today. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and this is what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I want to stop there. So that's just the first three verses, one through three. And uh, I, I want to ask this question. How many people know what I'm talking about when I say the joy of painting? Raise your hand if you know, all right? About half of us. Uh, maybe this will make more sense. How many people know what I'm talking about when I say Bob Ross? Okay, let's show a picture of Bob Ross. This is my friend Bob up here. <clears throat> so uh, this is a picture of Bob Ross. Bob Ross is the host of a hit television show that was on PBS, an instructional painting television show that ran for 11 years through the 80s and 90s. And uh, this, is, this is the painter. This is Bob Ross. I actually tried to find a picture with him with a squirrel on his shoulder, because if you've watched it, he actually legitimately has a pet squirrel <laughs> that sometimes he would bring on the show. He is an amazing man. Bob Ross uh, started this TV show where uh, every TV show would uh, begin or every um, Joy of Painting show would begin by him kind of welcoming the, uh, the people, the viewers that are watching the show. There would be a blank canvas in front of him, and then he would spend the next 30 minutes uh, painting on this canvas. And what started as a blank canvas would end up in 30 minutes becoming an incredible, beautiful landscape scene that he would paint and kind of walk people through how you might follow this, uh, kind of teaching people to paint along the way. It's not, uh, it's, it's truly mesmerizing TV. If you've ever watched The Joy of Painting, you will absolutely get sucked in to this TV show. Uh, <clears throat> it's not uncommon that in our house, I'll be doing something and we'll hear the music to TJOP. That's what we call it. We've never actually called it that, but The Joy of Painting. Uh, <laughs> that I'll kind of hear that music coming on. I'll come into the living room and my wife, Grace, 
will just be there eating out of the palm of Bob Ross's hands. <laughs> just absolutely focused in on the joy of painting. She loves it. A few weeks ago, I entered the living room in a very familiar scene. Uh, but what I noticed right away, this was kind of in the, in the early part of the show, was that he had covered the canvas with almost all black. It was a very, very dark canvas, and it started kind of at the top, and it was black, and then it maybe it turned into like a darker blue, but the whole canvas was very dark, kind of an unusual way for him to start. And I had the thought that I have often when I watch this show, like, oh, man, I'm not sure he's going to be able to make this one good. I think we've all had that. When you watch it, and you're like, I think he screwed up on this one. I had that same thought. I was like, I'm not sure Bob's going to be able to pull this one out. Like, that's a pretty dark canvas to begin to start from. And so uh, I continued to watch, and like uh, most times, it ended up being something incredibly beautiful. But this is really the way that the first three verses of chapter two start. It's a sweeping, dark canvas, seemingly unreconcilable, unable to be restored. It's a bleak scene that Paul paints for us. We're reminded that we are spiritually dead. Minded that the relationship with God that we were created for has been fractured by sin and that now as we walk, we walk in the ways of a distanced and evil world. That we have been given over to our fleeting and selfish desires and that as much as we might try, as much as we may yearn for goodness, we have missed the mark and all of our attempts fall flat. Paul pulls no punches when he describes the landscape from which we come. But I'm there in the living room, and as always, I get sucked in to this episode, and I'm watching, and, and, and Bob has uh, kind of painted this dark background, and he says something kind of interesting. He says something along the lines of, now that we've laid the background, let's do the fun stuff. Let's add some color. And he takes a paintbrush with titanium white, and he begins to create some clouds and some rays from the moon. And then with Van Dyke Brown, he paints a few happy trees, which he's, that's what he's known for, is happy little trees. And with fallow green and yellow okra, he creates a meadow. And suddenly this uh, painting begins to take a very, very different shape. It begins to look different, but even more than that, it begins to actually feel different. The scene that emerges on this canvas is no longer bleak. It's turning beautiful right before my eyes as I'm standing there in the living room. This is essentially what Paul does in the next six verses of the chapter. He says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of the works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The thing I think I love most about this section 
is the statement, but God. I contend it's the most important phrase in the entirety of the section. It's really the linchpin that keeps the wheels from flying off this whole thing. It's as if Paul picks up a paintbrush and begins to layer on color to once was a a foreboding canvas, and it becomes a beautiful landscape right before our eyes. One thing I cannot lie about is I love scriptural big butts. Now, I'm going to pause there for a moment. I'm going to see if anybody picked up the fact that I loosely quoted Sir Mix-a-Lot. Did anybody get that? Thank you. Like I said in the first service, it has been my dream and my goal for eight years being here that I would quote Sir Mix-a-Lot in a sermon, and I did it. So I'm very, very pleased with myself. Uh, But seriously, big butts like this serve to really reorient our understanding or our idea of a situation in Scripture. We see them throughout, and this is no exception. You were this way, but you are now different. You were this way, but because of God, you are now different. This section of Scripture really does two major things, and the big but in the middle serves as a catalyst for both to work more effectively. Here's the first thing it does. It forces us to remember where we are from. You see, Paul uses verses 1 through 3 to remind the reader of the reality from which we come. It's the black canvas that he first paints, the daunting picture of our lives without God, spiritual and relational beings without spiritual and relational connection to the one who created us. There's an old adage that says it's impossible to know where you're going if you don't know where you are from. This, in essence, is what Paul is trying to achieve. How many people have ever really been lost before? Not just like I couldn't find my way for a a few minutes, but truly lost before. Okay, several of us. I had, about 10 years ago, I had an opportunity to uh, to do something pretty cool. Uh, I had five great friends, and uh, we were invited to be a test pilot program for like a, um, a survival course kind of thing. So... There's a place in central Oregon that uh, used to be called Wild Horse Canyon. It is now called something different, but it's a big young life camp down there. And I was familiar with this place, but it's 65,000 acres uh, is the total amount of property. And it's all like high desert landscape. It's it's a very beautiful landscape, but different down there. It's like when you're driving through Vantage if you're on your way to Seattle. Very similar to that. So uh, the idea was uh, there would be six of us, myself and then my five uh, friends, and, and we had... A, uh, we would be dropped off somewhere in this property, given 24 hours to make our way back to base camp. And there would be a number of tests that would kind of uh, test our, our wits along the way to see if we could make it back. Uh, and so we, uh, we signed up for this. We thought this would be an awesome opportunity to, to do something kind of cool. We leave Seattle uh, on like a, f- a Friday mid-afternoon. We show up to this place. We kind of drive into base camp. We walk into this big, uh, one of those old school like canvas tents. And there's a big table that's laid out and uh, that's in front of us. And on there, there's about 30 items, things like flashlights and emergency uh, blankets and matches and knives and food and so on and so forth. And the director says, uh, empty your backpacks right now everything that you have in your backpacks. And he says, what you can put back in your backpack is a sleeping bag and one layer of clothes. And then he said, together now, 
you need to figure out what are the 15 items that are most important for you to take. And each of you has to bring three of those things, all right? So we're there. We begin to uh, kind of talk with one another about, uh, okay, we should bring this and this, and, and we got this, and well, maybe we don't need that. And, and we kind of have this discourse about what is the most important thing. We can't take everything. So what's most important in terms of, uh, of what we're trying to achieve? And so we got our items, and we, we got all packed up. We're given a map and a compass. We're, uh, we're getting a car loaded in, a, in kind of a, like a van, and we're driven about 40 minutes away from this base camp. And some of it's on roads, and some of it's just like over land. Uh, <clears throat> and we're dropped off. And as we're dropped off, the guy says, on the map, there are four or five points. You need to make each of those points. There's a test at each one of those things. That needs to be achieved, so on and so forth. He said, you've got about a two-hour hike tonight to where you need to sleep. And then tomorrow, just be prepared that you have a long day, okay? A long day till you can get back. It's about 6 p.m. We jump out of the car, and uh, we get out the map, we get out the compass, and we set our course, and we begin hiking. And it wasn't until about 10 p.m. that somebody asked the question, kind of from the back of the line, uh, hey, guys, anybody think we're maybe lost or anything like that? We've been hiking for about two extra hours. We, we good? And whenever you have a group of guys trying to navigate or like out in the backcountry, there's always the one guy super confident that goes, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. It's right up here. Like, I know exactly where, where we're at. We're right up here. <clears throat> so about an hour longer of hiking goes on until finally we collect ourselves. About 11 o'clock, we collect ourselves and uh, we begin to say, okay, there's, we're absolutely lost at this point. There's no way that we have any idea where we are. And so through some old school navigation and honestly an incredible amount of luck, realized that we had overshot this little drainage that we needed to be in by about uh, 90 minutes at this point. And so we had to backtrack and get there and we found the creek and, and it's, we, we eventually kind of show up to this place where we are to be in that first night, probably around uh, 1230 or one o'clock. The reason I tell this story is this. We had everything that we needed. Now, none of us died out there, right? We had all of the stuff. We chose the right items to have in our backpack. We had our sleeping bags. We had good boots. We had enough layers. We had a map and a compass. We had five college degrees between all of us. But what we realized is that where we started our journey was not actually even on the map, and that was the issue. We were dropped off, and where we were dropped off was not on the map. And when you start your journey from a place where you don't know, it becomes very, very hard to figure out where you are going. We had no idea where we started, and therefore we couldn't get where we wanted to go. The same is true in our spiritual life. We need to know where we come from. You see, without knowing about our spiritual death, how could we know what it truly means to be alive in Christ? Without understanding of how sin separates us from the holy, why would we ever desire to be in a relationship with the holy? Without seeing the destruction of walking in the ways of evil, could we ever truly know about the goodness of journeying with God? You can think that you have everything you need. A good community a vibrant church, great singing voice, all the best commentaries, the coolest volunteer positions. But I promise you, you will be unable to move forward with God until you understand exactly where you have been. 
Here's the second thing, and, and I would say maybe the more important thing that this section of Scripture does is it helps us to look forward. You see, in the earlier uh, part of Ephesians in chapter 1, Paul really seems to want to drive home the idea, and Russ spoke about this in those first couple of verses, uh, who we truly are. And so he intentionally addresses the church as saints. He intentionally addresses the churches as those who are faithful. And I think Paul uses these words strategically to start his discourse with the affirmation of who these people truly are. He continues to affirm that truth through chapter 1, but then brings it front and center in our passage this morning. He says, you were this, but God has made you this. You see, big buts in the scripture have the ability to reshape our understanding of everything. I can remember a big butt moment in my life, and it's a story I've shared before. I won't give you the full, uh, the full thing this morning, uh, but I, I shared it a couple of years ago. Uh, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. My sophomore year uh, of high school has become a notorious year in, uh, amongst my family, referring to Kevin's sophomore year. It was a year of uh, utter and total rebellion between drugs and alcohol and unhealthy relationships with women. Uh, it was, uh, I had significantly distanced myself from my family. And I was on a trip with my dad during that summer. So this was right before my junior year of high school. And, uh, and this was a trip that I had taken with my dad multiple times. We uh, kind of grew, or I grew up fly fishing with my dad. And, and this to me, um, although it was never really said, the secret motive behind this trip was let's see if we can remove Kevin from uh, the scenario that he's in, the friends that he's with, and try to recapture my son was essentially what was going on. My parents were um, kind of pushed to the end of what are they going to do? What's going to happen if this continues? So while I was gone, one of my closest friends through a variety of circumstances literally shared with my mom everything that I had ever done in my life. And when I say literally, I don't mean literally like figuratively how we usually mean it. I mean actually literally. I came home and my mom had five notebook uh, pieces of paper with full details written out of uh, girls' names that I had done stuff with and different places I was when I drank and so on and so forth. Fully detailed out my entire life. While I was on the trip, I didn't know this yet, it was Saturday morning. This was two days before I was supposed to come home with my dad. I receive a phone call in the hotel. It's about 6 a.m. So I'm delirious. You know, I'm, I'm woken up uh, out of sleeping. I'm kind of delirious. I pick up the phone. I say hello. And it's my mom's voice. And this is what she says. Kevin, I know everything you have ever done. And she says, you and your dad will be coming home today. We will be talking tonight and figuring out what we do from here. And then she said, I'm angry, I'm hurt, I'm disappointed, I'm scared, I'm sad, but you need to know that there is nothing you can do to make your dad and I stop loving you and give up on you. And in that moment, my understanding of who I wanted to be changed. I was a certain person before that, portraying a, a certain set of characteristics, projecting what I thought would bring me fulfillment and friends and notoriety and happiness, happiness. Though when my mom said, but, I knew I could and should 
and wanted to be somebody different. I just needed somebody to tell me. My mom saw through all of the things that I had done in high school and knew me for who I really was. And she would not let go of that. God knows us for who we really are. Now, he does know the deepest and darkest and ugliest parts of our life. He's been there for every thought and every decision, and yet he continues to see us as precious children with whom he deeply loves and with which he lavishes grace. God does not see us as sinful and distant and wrathful people, and therefore I'm convinced we should not see ourselves in that way. You see, God is merciful and his love for us is great and we are made alive in Christ, saved through grace. We are raised and to be seated next to him in the heavenly places. So much so that we don't need to frantically look for ways to put our lives back together to try to do what has been undone. This is who we are. We are not sinful, cursed, evil, degenerates without hope. That's simply the land that we came from. We are sons and daughters of the Most High King and Lord. Here is why I think the big but in this scripture is so important. Because how you theologically understand yourself will radically impact how you love others. Let me describe it this way. On April 11th, 2003, I was a single man. I was responsible for no one but myself. I could come and go as I pleased. I could do what I want when I wanted. I only cared about myself, ultimately. But then, on April 12th, 2003, I got married. And immediately, my reality changed. My identity changed in that moment. I now had a greater responsibility. I knew that I had to think about somebody else before I could think about myself. You see, the worst possible thing for the health of my marriage would be for me to continue to see myself and operate in a way as if I was still single. To live this way would be destructive to my marriage. Now, certainly my singleness helped me to more fully appreciate the deep love and joy that I have found in marriage, but the aspects of an identity that comes from singleness has no place in my marriage. The same is true for our spiritual reality. Knowing where we are from allows us to deeply appreciate our need, while knowing and trusting our new identity is the only way our lives can be filled with true goodness. This is the function of the big but. It's to reorient everything that we know to be true, to showcase to us that there is no scenario in which God cannot redeem, restore, and reconcile, that there is nothing Absolutely nothing beyond his grasp. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the truth of this passage is that from the dark and empty and formless reality of our lives, God, as the master painter, is able to create beauty. That is the truth of the scripture. Buechner says this, He says, the grace of God means something like, here is your life. You might never have been, but you are because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I 
Him with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you I created the universe. I love you. There's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you reach out and take it. Maybe being able to reach and take it is a gift too. Here's what I love about this quote. It strikes me as an encouragement to live into, to to really reach out and accept our new identity. Yes, great and awful things will happen, but the love of God will never be separated from us. We were created for a purpose, and we have no reason to fear. All it takes is our willingness to accept and move forward. For those who stay fixated on the place from where they are from, even if they cognitively desire to follow Jesus, they will struggle to live a life of anything but that black canvas that we first talked about. So reach out and take the gift. Accept the fact that God sees you as precious, that he loves you, that he knows where you are from but does not hold that against you, nor is he continually looking for you to make things right. I encourage you to humbly admit the place where you are from, but set your sights forward on the grace and mercy of God and to live a life alive in Christ.